Welcome to the Mindset for Runners podcast, helping you to access and unlock your true potential as an athlete. This episode is brought to you by Coda Nutrition. I've been using Coda gels and electrolytes for the past eight years, and they've got me through countless long runs and ultras. My favorites are the lemon electrolyte tablets and the cola gels. I've also benefited from Coda's sweat rate analysis, which has allowed me to know exactly how much sodium I lose per litre of sweat, and that helped me to dial in my sodium intake during training and racing. Coda Nutrition have generously extended an offer to all Mindset for Runners podcast listeners until October 31st. Just use the code ROB15, that's R-O-B-1-5, to get 15% off your next order over $50. Hey, it's Rob here, and welcome to this very special interview with Brett Canellan. This is one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had in my life, and strap yourself in because you are in for a real treat in these next two episodes. So Brett is a surfer, a long-distance paddleboarder, a shark attack survivor. He's a filmmaker, a motivational speaker, a captivating storyteller. He's a mental health advocate and an exceptional athlete. And now, on top of all of this, Brett is an ultra-marathon runner as well. Brett's life will be changed forever when he was attacked by a shark at Bombo Beach near Kiama in New South Wales, and he almost died on the beach. In this episode, you're going to learn how Brett embodied the lessons and the wisdom he gained through his incredible resilience and post-traumatic growth after the shark attack, which have catapulted him into a purpose-driven life. You'll also learn how his story and his life is now dedicated to helping others learn what they are capable of achieving and to helping them realize that we only get one shot at this thing called life. I'm still processing my personal realizations and lessons from this life-changing conversation with Brett, and I don't say that lightly. I hope this interview hits you as hard as it hit me. Please enjoy this captivating conversation with the one and only Brett Canellan. Thanks so much for your time today, mate. I'm really grateful that you come along. Oh, I guess that gratitude's extended back with everything you've given me so far. So um, thank you. <laughs> well, I didn't give you much at all, but um, I, I've got a thousand questions I want to ask you. Um, but we need to start with a bit of background. You grew up in Kiama. Can you tell us a bit about that and when surfing came into your life? Yeah. Um, Kaima is, I mean, as, as a lot of people around here know, a, an amazing place to live, a great place to grow up. It was only natural that growing up in Kaima kind of led to something in the water, whether it be surfing or surf club. Or for me, for a very long time, it was bodyboarding, um, which much to the disdain of my dad, who's a longtime surfer, <laughs> he, he's always trying to edge me towards surfing. It wasn't until I was 11 until he, he finally got me on a board. So um, that was uh, a, a big tick in the in the success box for him but um that that kind of set off a huge chain of events for me um just from picking up surfing because early on in life like i was always very very sporty liked a lot of different sports i still love every single sport um but i played a lot of different things like you name it i've I've tried it like almost anything that you could do at a young age I, i was having a crack at but when i took up surfing that that year I gave up everything else. Like that was the year I quit soccer, I quit tennis, I quit, um, I was like doing water polo and all these other sorts of, <laughs> sorts of things at that time. And I gave them all up and I was like, I just want to surf. Um, so that was, there was just 
something about the sport where I didn't necessarily know at the time how big it was going to be in my life, but it was it just had this allure to me where I was like, this is this is amazing and it's all I want to do. And I guess the thing with surfing is to enjoy it as much as possible. You kind of need to have the time for whenever the waves are good. So, you know, you don't want to drive to soccer practice and have a look and see the waves are, are firing as you're driving along the beach there and, and feel like you're missing out. So I, I made it a priority um, because of the love for it. And I think that's kind of the cool thing about the love of surfing from a young age that develops. Uh, it changes as you as you get a little bit older with surfing, like when you're younger, that is surfing in its purest form. Like you don't really care about how good the waves are. You're always just, you're just stoked to be out there. You're stoked to be doing it and you're, you're improving as well. Um, but then as you get more into competing and stuff like that, I think your meaning around why you surf changes a little bit. So my, my favorite thing today is when I come across new surfers, whether they be people who are late teens or, or, even, or even adults, because they just have that same admiration for the sport that you remember when you're really young and i think there's a like there's a lot of purity to that which which i reflect on i'm like it's surfing has given me a lot in life but it's those early days that i probably looked on with the most fond memories that's really cool so, so as you progressed and you went into comp surfing did did that purity change for you yeah because it comes it becomes more about the results in a way and surfing is a very brutal sport to do competitively because like my dad used to always describe it as after 20 minutes half the field goes home yeah. after another 20 minutes the next half of the field goes home and there's only one winner at the end of the day so you have to get you you have to get comfortable with losing uh which is which is difficult but there's just so many opportunities that you have to lose and when it's a sport that is so dependent on luck and you could be the best surfer in an event but come dead last because of the luck of the ocean it can be very very frustrating so i think when you when you start looking into it competitively and there's all those sorts of sides to it it does take away from that like when when you were younger as i said before every surf is just the best because you you're just out there and you're in, you're enjoying it and usually it's like the best surf of your life <laughs> whereas there's not many surfs you'll have you know um a, a fair number of years into it now there's not many surfs i'll have a year where i'm like that was the best surf because there's i'm probably past those those days there's there's less best surfs ahead of me than there are than there have been behind me that's uh, when, when you talk about it that way uh, how did you keep your focus like when you went into comp surfing which was different which we had to learn how to lose and surf a different way how did you approach it because i know you you wanted to be on the world tour and you were very close to that goal, yeah. how did you do that? Well, it's, it's interesting. My journey with competitive surfing, I had a much later trajectory than, than what a lot of people do. Mm. And I think my experience with how I approach that is kind of shaped a little bit by the surfing that I did when I was sort of like between the ages of 14 and 16. Because for a lot of kids, if you have what it takes, that's when you get noticed, you'll get sponsored, you'll start winning events and it'll sort of be laid out in front of you. But for me, I was, still learning a lot then so i wasn't winning events but i was still improving i didn't have any sponsors but i still wanted to be around it because i still loved it a lot so it, for me that getting to that stage came a little bit later on so i think the ability to push through all of that losing the struggles in the early days it wasn't too disheartening because i was there was still that bit of love for it because i was still like i started late compared to a lot of a lot of people like I look at a lot of the peers when I was sort of that age and they'd all started surfing when they were 
I'd say like five years old, maybe even earlier. So they've got a massive head start. And I think there was a big part of me that, that knew that, but I didn't know when I was going to catch up to what sort of level. And, and it wasn't until I was 19 to sort of 22 that my surfing really, really took off. But I, I guess part of that is the natural development in being a surfer and the skills it takes there. There's being a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, but I think a big part of it's being smarter. Um, there's a specific way to surf a heat <laughs> that yeah. I didn't have the skills for that when I was younger that you it makes a lot more sense when you have the common sense and the reasoning <laughs> of, yeah. of a more developed brain to understand how to surf a heat and that was just something that came along with time and as I developed that the results kind of started to reflect the the improvements that I was making not only physically but mentally as well so in that period 1922 we you were you completely focused on surfing as a career? Yeah, and I I kind of made a choice that I wanted, regardless of if the professional surfing thing worked out or not, I wanted to be in surfing in some sort of capacity. So my career decisions were kind of based around doing whatever I could to, to be somewhere in the industry, regardless of if I was on tour or just a very good surfer who was, you know, maybe a, a brand rep or a team manager or had my own shop or whatever it might be because I knew that the reality of actually becoming professional is like it's a, still a very slim chance regardless of you know whether you achieve it or not there's only 34 people in the world that get to surf on tour these mm. days so wow. like that's that's a very small amount of people that get to live the dream that thousands <laughs> thousands hold as a young surf millions maybe yeah. so that I think there's a certain part of being realistic about the pursuit as much as I dedicated myself to it from sort of the age of 20 I still had that backup plan of, of wanting to be somewhere in the industry and that was a big part of of who I was as well like I, I didn't want to just be this guy that was all out competitive surfer and that's all because I think that's when you see people really struggle with their identity after that doesn't work out and I know plenty of people that are my age some of them made it onto the tour and these are the guys that I surfed against when I was younger and it's amazing to see where they are but then there's the other guys who who didn't quite make it some of them have found their way some of them have fallen into you know careers that you wouldn't expect that they would have fallen into and I guess that kind of just goes to show the variance of life when when the guardrails are kind of removed of childhood and school and all these sorts of things how random it, you know we can kind of end up being thrown into these different situations so interesting you say that mate so interesting i, I want to touch more on that identity as we go on today because you you did go all in but you had a plan b mm. so you you knew it was in the field somewhere and you go, how, how what was your training like when you were in that full-on period trying to make the tour so it's, it's funny, training for surfing is not like training for running, for example. <laughs> it's, um, there's, not, there's not really a specific way of, of doing it. There's not many theories around surf training. It's, a lot of it is just spending time in the ocean, which is probably similar to running, spending time on your feet. But the thing about surfing is you can spend three hours in the ocean and not catch one productive wave. <laughs> and, fair, is it? Or you can surf for 20 <laughs> minutes and you can catch five productive mm -hmm. waves. So... Part of it is just being in the water and giving yourself the chance to, to catch waves and, and give yourself the chance to improve because if you're not standing up on waves, you, you're not really going to learn much um, and you're not going to improve. So a lot of it was just time in the water. Um, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go straight to check the surf first light. I'd be out there, try and surf first thing in the morning. Um, 
and then at the time I was working, so I'd spend the day at work, um, try and surf after work if there's any sunlight left. Um, a little bit more difficult in winter than it is in summer, but then after that I'd usually go and work out at the gym. So the gym stuff came a little bit later on for me. That was sort of when I was like, okay, what do I need to do to make this happen? Because there's the, the technical skill of surfing itself, there's being strong and then there's being smart, so there's heat surfing. So there's, there's those three different things to it. So you can work on the technical ability a little bit through coaching, but through just being in the water and improving. Um, the strength and the body is through being at the gym. And then the smart side of things is difficult because you kind of need to have yourself in heat scenarios. And as, it's all well and good to go for a surf and say, okay, I'm gonna focus on the next 20 minutes. I'm gonna take it as a heat, but it's not really the same unless you have three other guys who are trying to take waves off you and you're trying to take waves off them. So right. you really only get that experience from being in the, in the heat of the moment and being in the battle. So mm. it's just being getting that experience up through being in competition settings. And there's a lot of different comps that you can enter all up and down the coast, whether it be something local like board riders or, or other events sort of. Um, you can go up as far as Queensland, as far down as Victoria. Um, there's plenty of, of ways to do that, but it's, it's really, when it comes to surfing, it's just about, like, it, because there isn't that exact science, yeah. it's kind of finding what, what works for you. Because there's, there does become a point where, you know, you rock up at the beach one morning, the waves are awful, and, you, and it's cold and it's windy and you don't want to go out. And um, there's still benefit to be had from just being like, okay, I gotta go do it, <laughs> which sucks. But, but that's, I think that's a hurdle that a lot of people overcome. And if you want something bad enough, you, you're gonna find a reason to, to actually push through and to paddle out and be cold and, and have a bad surf, but then say, well, what, what did I actually learn from it? That's amazing. I wanna to talk to you about your goal setting technique and that reflection that you just said at the end then, because in the doco, we learn, you have a great metaphor about paddling for the cloud, then paddling for the island, and then paddling for the mountain, and you, and you break it down that way. But that you've also got this self-reflection, which you just mentioned then, which what, what have I learned from that? Have you always set goals like that in your life? Or? No, it's, it's been something that's come rather recently. Um, I, I'd like to think that I would have had some sort of direction when I was younger, but for me it was really only just about surfing um, and professional surfing and having that backup. That was kind of the only thing I could say was, was anything close to a goal when I, was, when I was younger and growing up. But it wasn't until after the attack and going through the recovery that I learned a lot about goals. And I think a big part of that is because when, when you're younger, the idea of setting a goal and failing is terrifying. And it wasn't until I, ha I actually learned the lesson of, you know, failure being a good thing, first of all, but being something that you shouldn't really be worried about it wasn't until I started learning that, which I learned through my recovery, that I, that I actually started setting goals in a more meaningful way. And as you know, like some of the things, when you reflect and when you learn on those, um, failing is almost the best way to learn because it means that it all didn't go according to plan. And that if you do try again or you try something different, you've got something to work on. It's amazing you say that. Growing up, I was petrified of getting things wrong, of failing, and I'd take it on as a, you know, a self you know, part of I failed, I'm a failure, so I'd go down to that level. Um, but you said you didn't learn that until your recovery. I, um, I, I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, can you take us to the pivotal point in your life? Yeah. Because um, I just, I, I want to hear you talk about it. From, from How long do you want me to talk about it for? <laughs> I, mean, I 
I just take your time <laughs> because when you brush over it, yes. it, it doesn't have the impact. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's an interesting thing to be given free reign on how to talk about the attack. So it's, it's obviously like when you look at the experience as a whole, it is a terrifying experience that for me as a surfer is something that you hope you never encounter and you don't know how you're going to respond until it's actually happening mm. to you. And it's one of those things where I always say that I was weirdly prepared to be attacked by a shark in a way because I think I've always known that that has been a fear that's in the back of my mind. It's not something that has ever stopped me from going in the water or surfing, but I think part of being so aware of sharks and the risk that you take in going in the ocean, you kind of have to think about, well, what would you do if something did happen? And I'd always, I'd not always ask myself that question, but I have over the years kind mm. of been like, okay, well, like, how would you react? Like, would you do what everyone says and like punch a shark in the nose? Or, you know, would you have the wherewithal to, um, I mean, to one of the big things that I remember was in watching Bethany Hamilton's documentary. And one of the things that I always was like, okay, I remember that she didn't look down at her arm because she didn't want to go into shock. And you're like, will you have the, the composure in a moment like that to actually follow through with this plan that you have set in, in the back of your mind? And you, you just don't know how you're going to react until you're faced with that. And to say I was prepared is one thing. To say things worked out how I thought they would is completely different because it's you can't you can't prepare your body as a human being to react to this this thing which is so bizarre for a human to find themselves into. And the only way I found it effective to explain what this is like and how foreign it is for humans to understand it is like as human beings, we in today's day and age, we don't know what it's like to be part of the food chain. Like we think of ourselves as apex predators, but it's not even that. We've escaped the food chain. Like we, we've developed the tools and the knowledge, so we don't even have to worry about it. But there's still a response within us that if we are put in that situation, there's that instinct that knows how to respond. And that's fight, flight, or freeze. But it's just we don't usually use that in such a, a situation like this. So being put in that situation where you look down and you see there's a shark biting your leg you don't it's not like you have a moment to think and be like okay what's my action plan what do i do here because you just freeze and that's that's actually instinct playing its its role there um fight fight flight freeze is one of the most interesting responses and something that's fascinated me for a long time since the attack because i've looked into those different stages and related it to the attack itself and said okay what parts were frozen was there any fight where was the flight and that and I think it's really interesting to look at the attack through that lens because the freeze is where that you know the moment where time slows down to the point of stopping that's where you you know you talk to most people who've been through something significant be it a car crash or, or something everyone always talks about it in a similar way where they're like yeah time 100% slowed down and that that is the freeze response which I think a lot of people have a misconception of what freeze is they think it's like giving up um, or yeah, or, or surrendering. But freeze is actually, I found out later on, is fight and flight on hold. So freeze is an information gathering exercise where you figure out which one is the best to do. Um, and for me, I'm, you're taking in all this information and there's, there's a number of things that stand out there which leave a pretty impressionable, like a, a big imprint on your memory. Um, there's three things that I always talk about that stood out to me the most. The first is the feel of the shark's skin. 
because you wouldn't think that that is something you would take in in a moment like this but as it's biting down on my leg and I'm trying to like push away or, or hold it you can feel its skin and just remembering that really rough feeling of its skin is something that stands out to me and I wouldn't think in the moment that is something you would remember um, there's the absence of sound and not even not even the fact that it was quiet it's just dead silence not even the sound of the water splashing um, I know I was screaming for help and I have no recollection of that it's just dead silence which is bizarre because I think that helps you or may help you but it just narrows everything down in your world onto what's actually happening like you don't think of anything else other than what is occurring right in front of you which for me is not something that's good and then the last thing is just the the look in the shark's eyes and this is something that could easily be used as a an image of terror which it is because when you look at this thing that is biting you you, you have that realization that a shark isn't something that you can argue with you can't reason with and you can't tell it to stop so you feel so helpless in that moment and that's a scary side of things but the way that i look at that image of looking the shark in the eye is that i as a result of my experience have grown to have a lot of respect for sharks um, and this is something that came right after the attack but a weird way to gain respect for sharks is to know how good they are at what they do. <laughs> and I found that out in a very brutal way, obviously. But these are incredible creatures. There is something about seeing them in their environment, doing what they do, moving as effortlessly as they do through the water that can only make you appreciate how incredible they are as creatures. Like There's a reason they've been around for as long as they have. And it's unfortunately for me because they're really good at finding things to eat and kill. Um, Again, really unfortunate way to find this out, but I always make sure I use that image which could easily be used as terror as that admiration that I have for sharks. And I think that's an important thing that I like to pass off to a lot of people. Um, but in this moment, you're taking in all the information and you, you realize you kind of got to do something. Um, everyone is always like, okay, have I said it before, punch the shark. <laughs> Makes total sense, but I, I tried. It didn't work because I don't know if anyone's tried to punch through water before. It's nearly impossible. <laughs> um, all, all great intentions, but when it doesn't work, you kind of freeze again. You're like, okay, well, what now? And really, I've only got one option left, which is, which is flight. So this is where I make what is considered a mistake um, in the way that I pull away from the shark because I try and get away from it. People call it a mistake because... Uh, apparently what you're supposed to do is to, to not pull away from it. You're supposed to be with the shark um, to the point where either you can do something to make it let go or I'm not sure what happens. It may drag you under the water. I wasn't going to wait around and find out. I always use this reaction as like a lot of people are scared of spiders and if you were had your hands on the table here and a spider crawls across it, you're going to pull your hand away. There's a few people that will leave it there that love spiders. I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, the problem with that though is our body as humans is incredibly fragile especially compared to how sharp the teeth of a shark are and as i pull away from it it just removes that flesh from my body which sounds terrible but this is where bethany hamilton comes in i don't look down i think to myself straight away i have a window to escape and i just focus on trying to get into the beach so i put my head down i try and swim as hard as i can and as I get maybe like 20 meters, meters further in, I have this thought come over me, which is 
a terrifying thought to have, which is like, is this thing going to come back a second time? It's absolutely terrifying. Yes. I can only say there's one thing more terrifying than that, which is looking around to see it actually coming back. Yeah, right. And it's a good thing I had the thought because it, it allowed me to the, the response to try and stop it. So I put my hands out, try and stop it. And the that reaction is probably something that saves my life um, or maybe a little bit more damage. Just um, for the understanding, are you on your back now floating with your hands out? Essentially, or? yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm in the water um, like as, as you are, as buoyant as you are. So you kind of like chest up yeah. is out of the water. So I see it coming just with enough time to, to put my hands out kind of at surface level. And my right hand lands on the shark's nose. My left hand um, goes into its mouth. And to give you an idea of how sharp the teeth are i know it's not great for an audio podcast but this is on my hand it grazes its its tooth and it's just ripped this enormous chunk out of my hand so i can, I can see a flap of about two or three centimeters yeah. there on your palm yeah. which they were luckily luckily they could sew that back in but just that was just brushing against its teeth they are incredibly sharp but there's this moment where i'm like arms extended hands on the nose of the shark and it's pushing me through the water i'm like how do I get away from it now? <laughs> it's like, I've already given up a large chunk of my leg to get away from it one time. What do I have to do this time to get away from it? And I'm trying to figure out what to do a little bit in that, that freeze mode again, looking around and I see a wave approaching and I'm like, okay, I think the only thing I can do is when the wave hits us to try and like push a shark to one side. And hopefully that wave will have enough power that will, it will separate us, but it'll push me in towards the beach because that's where I want to go. And the wave hits us, I push it to the left and the wave luckily does have quite a lot of power. I'm doing front flips underwater. And I surface and I stand up and it's like waist deep water. So it's actually pushed me in a fair way, which is great news for me. And I look up this time and luckily I don't see the shark coming back a third time. (laughs) I look up and see my good friend Joel, who I was surfing with that afternoon. He's paddling towards me as fast as, as he can. So I mentioned I didn't hear my screams for help earlier. Luckily he had, and he decided to paddle towards me again another thing where you're not really sure what your reaction is going to be until you're you're in that Um, i'm incredibly lucky that that he came to my rescue because without him i wouldn't have had the energy to make it to the beach i didn't have my board because when it hit me the first time it knocked me off my board and its teeth cut through my leg rope so i would have had to have either swum or walked my way in and by that time i think i would have lost too much blood so i was lucky that he was there he puts me on his board, takes me to the beach, drags me up the sand, and that kind of takes us out of the the danger part, which is being in the ocean. Like there's once you're on the sand, there's this relief of like, okay, I don't have to worry about the shark anymore if it's going to come back again. Um, but at that point, it's kind of like, well, what now? Like I, I at that point was so out of energy that I couldn't lift my arms up. Right. So again, lucky that Joel was there to take me into the beach. And that's why he had to drag me up the sand because I just had no energy. And Joel runs off to get some help and uh, he's like, I'll be back. And I'm just laying there by myself. And there's such a draw to want to look down to see what has happened because you kind of need to take stock. But there's like probably out of everything I've done in life, I think the most strength I've ever had is not looking down in that moment because I'm like, just just not going to benefit me if I know how bad it is. So I'm like, okay, what what is this moment then and there's like you're trying to weigh up you know you've been attacked by a shark you know it's bad because you're completely out of energy you don't know 
what the entire situation is because you haven't got a visual on it, but you know it's not good. And for me, there's that inevitable thought, which I I still struggle to to explain what this feeling is like, but there's the thought that comes through, which the thought is, is this what it feels like to die? And that's a very profound thought to have, but not knowing what comes next, not knowing how close you are to death and, and not knowing how to get out of it is, is just a strange place to be because you don't really have an answer to that question. It's not like you can say yes or no, because if I say yes, then, then what happens? If I say no, then like, there's nothing I can do to actually help the situation. But just asking that question, it puts you in a very vulnerable position. That's why I think a lot of people ask, like, is this the moment where your, your life flashes before your eyes and stuff like that? And I didn't have anything specifically like that because there was this overwhelming feeling that something about the situation didn't feel right. There was something about that moment where, again, it's really difficult to explain with words. It was just this feeling that regardless of how bad it was, it just didn't feel like my time. This is fascinating for me. So you've actually, you, I'm just trying to be you on that <laughs> beach and you've asked yourself that question with no certainty. As you said, we're sitting here now, but we could easily have not been sitting here. Yeah. And then you had a feeling that it wasn't the time to die. Yeah. How can you, how, what's the gap in between the thought and then the realization? Can you take us, like, break it down? It's almost immediate. Because it was like, you, you have to ask yourself the question, um, I think, because if you don't, then, like, I mean, there was nothing else that I was doing in that moment. Like, this was really going to determine, I guess, what attitude I take towards the next moments. Like, if it, if it is, then, like, how do you want to live out your final moments? Like, do you want to use those moments telling someone around you that, like, tell these people I love them, like, whatever it might be? Or if it's not going to be that moment, then what... What do you do to try and get through it? But that's the the strange thing about it is that overwhelming feeling of of no, like straight away. It was I don't know if it was because I refused to believe it, or if some part of me knew that there was this this small amount of survival that I that you know, and and it was a small part of survival that kept me alive. There was just that thing where as soon as I was like, no, it doesn't feel right. Okay, well, what can I do? And it was there's not much I could do. Like uh, it was really just breathing and staying present. So this, and, and that's what you did. You, yeah. you could breathe. You didn't look down. Yeah. It's like that intuitively came to you. I'm mm. just going to breathe and you're alone. You're, you're completely alone. Time, yeah. And which is, and that's a vulnerable place to be yeah. in because you don't know when, when Joel's coming back, how long he'll be, what sort of help he's going to come with. Like you, you hope he's going to come back with an ambulance, but <laughs> All likelihood is he's just going to come back by himself and, and try and do whatever. And I guess this is where I always say that when I look at this whole experience, I was incredibly unlucky to be attacked by a shark. Like you look at the odds of being attacked by a shark and numerically it's a ridiculous thing to, to even try and fathom. I always say it's like winning the lottery but in the wrong direction. Um, do you have the numbers? Do you know? there's, there's not an exact number. It's anywhere between one in 3.6 and one in 11.5 million. <laughs> right. So like, even if you go at the, the lighter end of the scale of one in 3.6 million, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> so going from the most unlucky I've been, I think from, from the moment I said to myself, this doesn't feel like my time, I want to focus on breathing and staying present, it was from there where the luck started to, to turn. And I, I'm not sure if this is something that, 
people can see as like a spiritual thing or if it's just circumstantial, whatever it is. I always make sure that I outline all of the bits of luck that, that kept me alive because luck comes in the form of where I was bitten. So like losing three quarters of your left quarter is a lot, but somehow in that removal of the muscle, the femoral artery was undamaged and it was missed by two millimeters. Which Unbelievable. is and two millimeters. I mean, yeah, you'll you'll know that that's a significant um, a significant slice of life for people that don't know. Like, if the femoral artery was severed in any sort of way, I wasn't going to make it to the beach. So that's lucky. Um, the fact that Joel was there was incredibly lucky. Joel is for for all of his life saving qualities, he's not my most reliable of friends when it comes to showing up on time and or actually being there. He made up for it. He made up for it. So the fact that he was there is incredible. Yep. The fact that he paddled towards me which from his point of view is not a choice this is instinct as well um the fact like if he paddled the other way i you can't hold that against him you don't know how you're going to react when you're faced with he knew exactly what danger he was going into and some people will do that and some people won't and i don't think you can judge someone based on their response in a moment like that but i'm incredibly lucky that he did it's incredibly courageous thing to do it's easy to say in hindsight but yeah. if anyone put themselves in that position you know you, you'd like to think you would paddle yes. towards your mate but yeah. that's it so lucky he was there because um, he got me back into the beach the person you ran off to get some help from is his now wife um, this is the first time i've seen her on the beach watching him surf she was the person that called the ambulance helicopters knew exactly what i needed because she's an intensive care nurse Lucky she was there. Everyone always, it's funny, everyone always says, oh, there's always a nurse. And I'm like, yeah, there's always a nurse. I had two nurses because there was one other person walking along the beach who was also a nurse who, you know, John says he doesn't know why he went for a walk that afternoon. It's not something that he does every afternoon. But just the, the luck. Hmm. Like, and that, that's where I look at that situation as a whole. And it would be easy to focus on how unlucky you've been to be attacked by a shark. But I think the luckier thing is combining all of those tiny bits of luck and saying the fact that I'm here with an ability to share the story is incredible just by itself. And for me, that outweighs how unlucky I was to be attacked by the shark in the first place. How long did it take you to put all that together to be able to see it in that 360? There's, there's a feeling of being lucky to be alive when you wake up in hospital. Like that, that's, that's kind of where it starts. But it's not like you can just wake up and be like, oh, I'm grateful, to, like, yeah. I'm grateful for all of this stuff. Like yeah. that, that takes time and it takes... I, I don't think it's something that you can work out just through, through thinking. I think you work it out through your experiences and wow. talking to other people. And the, like my overall attitude towards everything is probably taken... It's probably like I'm still learning a lot about it. Um, because I talk to people who have their own experiences that make me reflect on my own in different ways. And there's always, there's always new things to learn, even about something you think you know so much about. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's an ongoing process. But to get to the point where I was, I was looking at that objectively and saying, well, for me, the, the big point was when I said I could easily look at that as the worst day of my life and if I could go back in time to not go for a surf. But to arrive at the point where I'm like, that was actually the best day of my life. Was probably, probably twelve months. I'd say, like, if I had to give a rough time frame, I don't know if that's exact, but, and that's that's time to gain perspective, time to heal, time to take stock of where you were and how far you've come. And I don't, I don't know if that changes if I have a different outcome. I don't know if that takes me a, a lot longer to figure that out. 
but that's that's a significant point to me because at that stage you're you're kind of saying that this is not this terrible shark attack which has happened to me and that's i'm no longer the victim this is more something that i view as uh, an event which has given me more than it's taken away and and that that for me was the point where i'm like okay i think i have achieved some sort of growth through this it's fascinating to hear when we look at those five stages of grief elizabeth goodler ross the last one being acceptance but you've moved beyond acceptance to appreciation mm. or gratitude and that's that's like a new level <laughs> to, for me to hear is like i accept this happened but you're like this could be the best thing that ever happened to me it's it's just mind-blowing to hear <laughs> so you, joel's going to get help yeah john's walking down the beach yeah and what happens next? so by the time all of these kind of bits of luck combine um you've got aggie calling for ambulance and helicopter joel has come back to me and he's got his leg rope off his board he's got my leg rope he's tying tourniquets john has come over he's helping tie the tourniquets in the right way um at that stage a few of the other surfers who are surfing further up the beach they'd realized something's going on and they're all starting to come in and then it's just this slow accumulation of, of people and this is a strange moment for me because i i can remember like the first major injury i had when i was younger was i broke my collarbone when i was playing afl it's a one and only time i've ever played afl was a school gala day and i just remember this feeling of laying in the middle of the field and i like in immense pain because I broke my collarbone and there's this circle of people around you and there's just all of these people staring straight down at you and you're like, I, I've never liked being the center of attention. <laughs> and it's like, there's all of these people where you're, you're like the only thing that they're looking at. And there's like this feeling of being uncomfortable in that. And on the beach, I had that same feeling of like, all of these people are looking at this, but not only that, they know the extent of the injury because they can look down at my leg and you don't and this is what makes it strange because as all these people are coming in i'm kind of gauging how bad it is based on their responses because <laughs> and that's hard to do in my position because i'm trying to stay calm i'm just trying to trying to stay present and i'd see people walk up and they're just like shocked or some people would look and they just walk away because like i can't deal with that and they like they don't know what they're doing to to the patient and that's that's fine like you don't really go in there with the the mindset you're like i'm gonna look strong i'm gonna help the patient out <laughs> but i the best way i dealt with it was i would see people that i knew because surfing small community you know everyone that, that was coming in so i'd see people and they come in. i can remember um one of my good friends geordie fowler who i grew up with surfing and was always competing against him and he was surfing he came in and he was like just his face was like oh my god and i was like hey geordie how you going like just trying to make conversation with him unbelievable Brett. and um <laughs> so i think me trying to stay calm was good for the the whole efforts of everyone else because yeah. if a patient is hysterical and is is in that that way of like this is the end i think i think that passes off onto everyone else and the whole effort gets frantic and i think one thing i can remember about it is just despite those few reactions everyone was so calm everyone felt like they had a job to do and they were doing it so they were tying they had more tourniquets they were putting around my leg and it wasn't until probably about 20 minutes after that the ambulance arrives um there's a feel yeah there's a feeling when the ambulance arrives where 
you're like, okay, we have like these, I have professionals. Like, not that everyone hadn't been doing an amazing job already, but you feel a little bit safer and you feel like you're one step towards like getting off the beach mm. and the ambulances come in, they take all the leg ropes and stuff and they put their own tourniquet on. And then they say, okay, we've got the helicopter coming. And you're like, okay, the helicopter's coming. That's one step. Yeah. So you just kind of, similar yeah. to what you mentioned before with the paddle, like the cloud, the like um, cocoa head, like the side of cocoa head, Roy's restaurant. Like as you, you've got these small little things that you, you kind of like. Okay, that's one step closer, and it's a bizarre thing to be to be conscious through that whole experience, um, to have the memory of it all, to be able to recall it, to to be at peace with it. I think is something that if I had passed out on the beach, or I didn't have any memory of the attack, I think I would have a, a lot more of a difficult time recounting it but I think having that memory of it is a positive thing because I do I have been able to fill in those blanks yeah. I have been able to talk about it and it takes the fear out of the the experience itself because I think you start looking at it objectively it's like moment by moment rather than like this horrific shark attack which your brain's trying to piece back together but mm. I was conscious all the way up until when the helicopter got there and that's when they gave me all the painkillers <laughs> and took me to St. George Hospital. Speaking about the pain, you mentioned you were laying there, not looking down, breathing, focusing on being present. In the documentary, you mentioned the sickness feeling and the pain in your, in your tummy Stomach, yeah. from your organs shutting down. They've applied to three tourniquets, two leg ropes, part of your wetsuit, and then they took them off to apply. Yeah. Is there pain when... There's, there was no pain in, in any of that. So the, the most pain I had on the beach was that pain in my stomach. Mm -hmm. And initially I thought I'd been bit there. Right. So I, I had gotten, when Joel came back, I was like, can you check to see if there's any bite marks on my stomach? And he was like, no, there's nothing. And I like, couldn't believe him because I was like, that's so painful. Wow. And that was, that was the only pain that I had the entire time on the beach. I guess because there's so much adrenaline mm -hmm. um, that you that's that's it's enough of a, a natural painkiller but there was no specific pain that i was like okay my leg is is in agony it wasn't really until i woke up in hospital that i was even aware of where on my leg the injury was because then i could feel it's like kind of this dull pain just to the entire leg then yeah. so the lack of pain is a, a strange thing but i, I think I think that's the body's way of kind of protecting you from from that situation like the that kind of goes to say like your instinct and how your body works to survive something i've always been fascinated by instinct because i think as human beings all of our responses are kind of set up for survival and i think that's why i always say to people like trust your instinct trust your gut because it always has your best interests at heart um whether that's in a survival mode or just in a lot of different scenarios i always like to trust my instinct because there's so many times I can look at where it has innately made the right decision. That's a, this is fascinating to me. So can you describe the instinct versus like thought or, or head trash? <laughs> trash? Yeah, well, it's, I'm trying to think of another scenario where it might apply in a, in a similar sort of way. Um, I mean, it probably is apt to use a running um, description. One of those times where um, like you've, you hit a wall or you're in some sort of physical pain when you're running and your brain is trying to tell you to stop because it's saying like it could be it could lead to injury it could be really bad or is it just 
the fact that you're really fatigued and it's something else that you can push through. And it's always that battle of listening enough to your mind and saying, okay, how bad is it? Do I need to get attention to it? Um, or is it something that maybe my instinct and just the ability to push through that is going to, to work us through? So I, I think there's, there's kind of always that balance, but I guess the, the ability to listen to what that instinct is saying and to, you know, the, it's obviously something that you can listen to. And if it's something that gives you an option, I will more often than not probably follow the instinct and see where that goes before maybe thinking about it in a different way. But I also think that instinct is is fairly logical, whereas our brain is highly emotional in a lot of different stages. That's a, that's a fascinating insight. Okay. Because <laughs> what you described before was that the brain is trying to protect us always through, yeah. through look searching for negative and, and building a story around the negative. But you can over, you say you override that with the instinct, mm. but then then you actually say that instinct is logical as well. Yeah, which I, I'm not sure if that's something that it makes sense in some situations more than others. Um, but specifically for for the attack and being on the beach and all of that, <laughs> I I didn't make a single decision. <laughs> there was. There was nothing that I did where I was like, this is what I'm going to do because it was all stuff like even not looking down at my leg. Maybe it was a decision I made at some point, but that was something that acted with my best interest yeah. in mind. And yeah. it was completely logical because if I was to look down, I'm going to go into shock. I'm going to panic. I'm going to lose more blood than what I need to in that moment. So I always think that there's a lot to be said for the power of instinct and, and trusting what that first response might be. Oh, I love it. I love it. I think I need more of that in my life, mate. That's a really good insight. <laughs> they put you in the helicopter. There's not enough room mm. for your mum. Your mum and dad are on the beach yep. and feeling helpless and all the incredible emotion. You're going into with the ketamine and all the stuff they're giving you. Yep. What happens there? Yeah, so they that was a difficult time on the beach, like getting into the helicopter. Again, like I, I had been very like... I want to say process driven, but it's not really that. It's kind of like, it, I was trying to be as logical as I could the whole time on the beach and trying to avoid that emotional response. And the first time the emotion hit me was when was when they were like, okay, you're, you're gonna go on this helicopter. And Ma, they were telling mum that she couldn't come with me. And she, which is a funny thing to think about because I don't know many situations where there would be an air transfer and someone is able to go with you. But there was just a feeling within that, I think because my parents actually got there on the beach, that I had someone close to me, someone familiar that was gonna be able to guide me through that. And the moment that you're told that, you'd not, that you can't have that, it's, it's really hard to kind of grapple with what, how you respond to it and what you do next. And that's where I, I kind of, there's not much that I can do I am quite emotional about that, but at the same time, the painkillers are taking over. I'm starting to, to slip in and out of consciousness because of um, just the effects of those, those painkillers. And also there's just losing touch with the situation there that getting in the helicopter is this really strange experience because you're not only leaving this environment where so much has happened, but I think you're leaving any sort of comfortable reality and you're not sure where you're gonna wake up in next. Yeah. Like I knew I was going to hospital, but there's still uncertainty of if you're going to make it or or um, mm. or what sort of state you're going to wake up in. And 
I know I've talked about a bunch of different times about the dream that I had in the helicopter, which was one of the most bizarre experiences I've had in my life. And another thing that's really difficult to explain through words, but basically this, this dream I have while I'm in hospital is something that, uh, sorry, in the helicopter, is something that, that documents my recovery. So I wake up in hospital, I, we, you know, we talk to doctors, we do all this stuff about this injury, which I don't have any details of in this dream, but I just know that I've, I've woken up in the hospital, I've had an injury, and then we start like working through recovery. And you go through recovery, you start going through this, like you gain momentum, like you start walking, you start running, you start doing all these things again to the point where you're like a fully recovered human being and life is normal again. And then I essentially, like I wake back up in hospital at square one again. And it's, a, oh, yeah. it's this strange, strange moment where you, you're trying to grapple with this experience you've had in this dream, which is quite a spiritual thing to, to encounter, where you could say to yourself, like, I, I've been through this, I have the keys, I know what it takes to recover. But at the same time, you're like, I'm back at stage one. Like, this is what, what now? And because I didn't know the extent of the injury at that time, it kind of breeds all this un uncertainty as well. Um, it's it's like, okay, was that just like this positive reinforcement that is that, that everything's going to be okay? Or is it like, this is a glimpse of what life could have looked like, but now it's going to be a lot different. Gotcha. And that's hard. Yeah. That's, that's hard to grapple yeah. with. Um, and I guess that speaks to, to the power of the, those um, those painkillers that they, they had me on. But it was just a strange thing to wake up to and to, to kind of take stock of and to be like, okay, well, that is certainly one path or one one way things could happen but now we've got the reality of, of actually trying to get through this recovery now and and that's where it really all started for me in that where it started can you take us through your approach like your mindset through that recovery process from from waking up that next morning was it the next morning or was it it was i still don't have a time frame i yeah. mentioned this in a podcast the other the other week that I need to follow up and see when I like how long I was actually in an injurious coma for because that's probably a, a pretty good thing to know but the um it it surely would have been the next day I don't think it would have been that night if so it would have been really late so yeah I, I wake up and the first when I first wake up I know that like there's this pain in my leg I know there's there's the injury I know about the shark attack I know all these things but don't know the extent of it and no one really does as of yet um, the surgeons do because they've already taken me and they've they've washed it out once and they've tried to assess it um, but they they aren't really sure what to expect so the first little while it was more that's where I say like you wake up and you kind of yeah I'm grateful to be alive but what does this situation actually mean for me and it's kind of hard to to grapple with what what comes next when no one really knows there's no real answers as of yet and that was the difficult thing at the start like there was so much uncertainty with how bad the injury was um, what they could do if they were or weren't going to amputate my leg um, what sort of quality of life comes after that um, you know if they amputate it, if they don't what operation they do what they can do to, to help all of these sorts like there's just so much uncertainty which is really hard to really hard to comprehend in a moment like that, especially with the undertones of the fact that you're like, 
well, I'm just happy to be alive. Right, so <laughs> you, you, you're skipping through these things, but, but this could be facing amputation, and then you, you think about that for a day or two until it just gets taken it's off the kind table? Of, it's or? a thought. It's, it's definitely a thought. That was the biggest one that consumed me for a while. Sure. It was like, how different is life going to be if I, if I don't have a leg? And you start kind of running through all these different scenarios of, you know, you're like, okay, well, how long will I be in hospital for? Will I be in a wheelchair? How long till I can start? Like, will, what will a prosthetic look like? How long will I be able to walk in that prosthetic? How different is life going to be at home? Like, to me at that point, I hadn't even considered how it would impact surfing because I was like, I'm, I don't even, I'm not prepared to think about it yet. Like I wasn't ready to face whatever truth that was. For me, the, the more immediate impact that I needed to figure out was how it was going to affect my day-to-day -day life and when I was going to be able to get out of hospital. So <clears throat> there's, there's that side of things, which is you, you hear the words amputation for the first time, and it is very, very consuming. Um, but then there's that battle of like, should I be grateful to be alive or should I try and be battling this this other thing of not knowing what life is going to look like with or without a leg. And that that was sort of for the first three days I was in hospital. I have to stop you there. Mm. So you're going, these thoughts, your mind wants to race to the to one future and mm. project down that line. And, and then you're, you're able to bring it back, kind of like you did on the beach, back to breathing and being present. And then it goes off in another direction of what life could look like. And then you're able to bring it back and folks. Mm. And then you're, as you say, grappling between gratitude and unluckiness and 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 you're managing all this in those first yeah. three days it's incredible to hear you break it down like that and it's it's something that i think we we do in different ways like i i've been thinking about this recently a little bit with um with a bit of work that i've been doing where i the the outcome of of that work or, or this thing that's happened at work is something that I don't really have control over how someone will, will perceive it and how they'll respond to it. And I've done everything that I can up until that point. And that's something that I'm like, okay, well, I could worry myself with the what ifs. Like, what if they come back to me like this? What if they come back to me like this? What if they're angry? What if they're happy? But I can't really control anything other than the intent that I put into putting that out there and how it's received is, is up to them. I know that I've done everything. And I guess it's a similar sort of similar sort of thing in this scenario. Like there's nothing I can do right now that is gonna change the outcome of whatever those things are gonna be in the future. So all you can really do is bring it back to the present. Like that's that's the only thing in your control. Because as, as a human, part of, part of, I guess, a lot of that anxiety comes through the lack of control that we have in a lot of different situations. So what can we control when there's so much that's out of our control? It's really just our thoughts and where that, that leads us. So rather than lead it down the path of catastrophe, you're much better served to, to bring it back to the, you know, something slightly more positive yeah, than, yeah, that, yeah, than yeah. that in any sort of way and know that that's all you can do in that moment. You can only really deal with stuff as, as it comes up. So that was the thing, like the, the first, so I had, they did that initial washout the, like as I got into hospital, um, I had a day off and then the day after that they did another washout because they were still sanding it and they wanted to figure out what they could do. And it wasn't until after that that they started talking about potentials for things other than amputation. So they'd obviously seen that there was enough muscle there that they might have been able to work with um, a transplant. 
where they looked around for different muscles in the body to see what could fit because essentially there was 15 centimeters of exposed femur which they needed to cover up um, because if that bone gets damaged then that's a certain um, amputation right so <clears throat> so they're like okay if we can if we can cover that with a muscle we can say yeah 15 no, centimeters just consider it. <laughs> and that's where when you pulled away yeah. it, it took took the muscle but the the teeth didn't actually hit the bone correct yeah. it's the strangest way to describe it. Uh, it it's classified as a degloving injury so um the the best way to describe that for people who don't know many medical terms that i've found is like you think about like a, a lamb shake or something like that where you can grab some off the side yeah. and it will pull it gotcha. without having to go all the way through and like and cut it cut around it so it essentially pulled things from either side of my leg without biting all the way into the bone so they had to cover that bone and they decided that the lat muscle is the best muscle to take to do that uh, because in your back that's it? which yeah. is in, in your back yeah. so the reason they take that one is because it's the next biggest one apart from the quad that they can take which doesn't have as much of an implication on other things like you could like theoretically take a glute muscle or something like that but you're just going to have as big a problem <laughs> down there if you try and shift that around so a lat muscle made the most sense for them to transplant um, and on top of that they were like functionality wise they're like we're going to connect a nerve through it which might make it the muscle work at some point in the future and they're like which would be best 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 case scenario but they're like the main function of this we want to cover the bone we want to save the leg from amputation so like the, the, their intention wasn't to actually give you movement back no it was to cover the bone correct so so they they did that um they used skin grafts um they took skin from three separate parts of my body um and kind of bound it all together and they were like okay this is what we've done like this is the operation they outline what they've done and they're like okay but this is what to expect moving forwards and that's when they start explaining the significance of losing three quarters of your left quad so they're like the quad muscle as a lot of people know is the biggest like muscle group in the body um, which essentially controls the straightening of your leg so the first thing they tell me is that it's essential to straighten your leg every time you take a step forward. So walking, they're like walking for you is gonna be a massive challenge because if the muscle in there isn't working and you can't straighten that, they're like, we're probably best case scenario is gonna have a little device on your knee that straightens it out as you move forwards. Now like walking gonna be a challenge. Now like we know that you've played a lot of sports growing up, living an active lifestyle. Like if you can struggle walking, then running is gonna be its own set of challenges but then they're like like we all knew which direction this was coming they're yeah. like but surfing. like your surfing's far more complex um, as far as movement patterns everything required to be able to not only stand up on a board but to to turn and to to go across the wave and they're yeah. like surfing like pipe dream is the word they use but they're like yeah, you're never gonna you're never gonna surf unbelievable um, let alone paddling without half of your so that's that's the thing about the lat muscle they so the lat muscle typically is used for um a pulling motion so you think about paddling you think yeah. about pulling up on a bar yeah. so they don't like to take the lat muscle from people who are surfers swimmers or rock climbers but in this case they just didn't have any other option there are other smaller muscles that will do a, a similar sort of job 
but they they don't like to if they don't have to but that was the only option was there, it so. ever an option of when you said transplant before of using someone else's no there's they it's funny my, my dad offered his quad which is very nice of him unbelievable <laughs> um that's just incredible isn't it? so there's there's enough they i think it's difficult enough for them getting the transplant to take when it's from the same body gotcha. i think there's a, a large um risk of it being rejected if it's from someone else right. so I'm not sure if that's just something that they completely rule out yeah. because the success rate is either not there or it's so low. But yeah, that I think when my dad asked, they're like, "No, you can't do that." <laughs> what a legend. So yeah, they. I guess you've got what they do to save your leg, the prognosis, and that's pretty bleak. Yep. And how you deal with that information, and despite how. You know all of these things that I just said about the things you can and you can't control and looking at things positively I, I shut down like it's the reason that was so hard for me to hear is because like we we already know how big a like part of my life surfing was and it's more than just the sport it's purpose it's identity it's friendships it's a dream like it's all these things all in one it's my whole life just taken away from yeah. me and it's really hard to grapple with what life is going to look like when you've been told now with certainty that this is what the future is probably going to look like because up until that time i could control it because i was like okay it's only speculative it's only speculative but when someone says that and it's reality that's that's what caused me to just kind of shut down understandably yeah so that's that kind of takes us to a point of being like kind of lost not knowing how to move forward, not having any blueprint. I hadn't been there before. I didn't know what to do. Um, and there's a like a huge amount of hopelessness that you feel in a moment like that. And the, I mean, the only natural antidote to hopelessness is hope. And hope is, it can be found in a number of different ways. Um, I... There's, there's like one specific moment of hope that I always point to that I'm like, okay, this, this is the moment that turned everything around. It was a text message um, from my physiotherapist, Scott. So he sent me a message when I was, this was shortly after the operation. So shortly after I, I, I was in kind of the depths of trying to figure out what life would look like and really struggling to see any sort of positivity. And he sends me this message and in the message, he's got some words of advice where he says, regardless of the prognosis, you've got a long road ahead of you. He says, people don't fail by aiming too high and missing. They fail by aiming too low and hitting. Look ahead with determination and set lofty goals. Wow. Which, that's an incredibly powerful set of words to hear, but that was coupled with the fact that he had offered to help me by donating his physio services and saying, I want to help you get better. And he's located in Kayama. So someone that's close to me, someone that wanted to help. And part of it is the, that bit of hope of someone being like, I believe in you, you can do it. And the other part of it is someone being like, here's a tool to look at. Like it's, it's all about the goals that you're going to set, which is going to shape the recovery moving forward. And like, I, I looked at that message for a long time and tried to figure out what it meant because 
like we said earlier, I hadn't really set goals up until that point. Like you, you hear of goals when you're in school and they're like smart goals, yeah. all these sorts of things. Um, but I had never really applied anything like that. So I was trying to think of, of ways to specifically apply this message and this type of goal setting of being overly ambitious to my situation. And I, um, I remember I had a few weeks to think about this because I couldn't go and see Scott until I left hospital. So I really couldn't set any goals. Plus, when you're in hospital, it's really just about the wound recovering and them getting you to a basic state where you don't need nurses to help you every single day. So I had a lot of time to think about it. And I remember leaving hospital and I was like, okay, I think I've got it. I've thought about Scott's message. I want to be ambitious. I want to learn how to walk again. And I went in and saw Scott the first time and he, like we, we met, we chatted and it got to the point where we set some goals and he was like, okay, I'll kick us off. He wheeled over this whiteboard. He's like, I'll start us off. And he's like, oh, and he goes over to the whiteboard and he writes down independence on the board. And I was like, okay, what do you mean by independence? And he's like, well, your mom's driving you around at the moment. You can't have that for the rest of your life. So um, we're going to get you back on your feet. You're going to be able to get around the house, all these sorts of things. You'll be driving yourself around the car. I was like, okay, that makes sense, I guess. So are you in a wheelchair? I was on crutches, crutches? Okay. yeah, by the time I left hospital. Yep. Um, so then he walks back over to the whiteboard and he writes down livelihood. And I was like, what do you mean by livelihood? And he's like, well, you got to get back to work, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, like I came into, like I had all this ambition. I was like, I want to walk. And I hadn't told him that goal yet, but I was like, I feel a little bit let down by the fact that he's just told me I need to drive myself around and get back to work. <laughs> And then he goes back over the whiteboard and he writes down surfing. And that's a big jump. Wow. And I was like, I was shocked. And he can see the shock in me and he's like, he's like, you, you're, you're right? And I was like, well, like that seems like a lot. And he goes, well, do you not remember the message that I sent you? And I was like, I did. He goes, what was the goal that you had in mind? I said, look, to be honest, I wanted to walk again. He goes, you're missing the point, aren't you? He goes, do you know what you need to get around the house and to get back to work? And I was like, kind of. He goes, you need to be walking. And it all just hit me. Like, it all made so much sense. It was that moment of clarity where I was like, I'd still with his words in mind, I had become one of the people that had aimed not high. Because if I had gotten to the point of walking again, I never knew how far I could have gotten. And you never know what you can leave on the table. And it's something that I think everyone finds themselves in. Like, everyone has been in a position where they want to be ambitious and they want to aim high, but there's that little voice in the back of their head or someone else saying, like, be more realistic only to get to the point and realize you've got more to give. And For you, in your defense, that was a lofty goal, to walk again. Yes, yeah. that's what I thought. <laughs> that's what I thought. Um, but it wasn't until I looked at it and he explained, he was like, look, whether or not we achieve surfing, like that, that is gonna be its own thing. Um, it doesn't matter if we achieve it, it doesn't matter if, if we fail. He said, I have put that down as a goal and I'm going to do everything that I can to lay out the pathway towards that success. All the tangible things are going to be there. You're going to have all the rehab plans. You're going to have the staff. You're going to have the recovery. Everything's going to be there for you. How far you go is probably going to be determined by how much hard work and effort you put into the rehab. But he said, regardless of if we get there or not, if we fail, but we've done everything we can, we can be proud. Wow. And we, we'll at least know what was possible. And it, when I looked at it like that, it just, it, everything was so clear. I was like, okay, I understand everything so much more. And there's still this certain part of you 
where you're like, okay, I still would have to grapple with what life would look like without surfing, but at least there would not be that unknown. Wow. That, that feeling of saying, could I have done it if you didn't try? So earlier you mentioned failure, and here's, the, the, here's what you're talking about is the goal was there, but in the past it would have been, I don't want to set a goal that I know I can't reach. Yeah. But this time it was inherent that you might not reach it, yeah. but the journey was worthwhile. Definitely. And again, like we can easily skip through the recovery and I've had a positive outcome with it, and it's easy to look at that in saying like, yeah, it all worked out for me and things were great, but what if I hadn't have achieved that goal <laughs> and that's that's something that I think has actually driven me to be a better person in setting more and more ambitious goals where you know the odds of failing are probably pretty high because there's a lot of opportunities to learn there um, yes I did surf again but I still think that if I couldn't get to that point it would have at least made it a lot easier to reason with the fact that the, I wouldn't be able to do it not through lack of trying. It would be through this physical barrier that I just that was impossible to break through. And the thing about failure that I've learned that I actually um, I got asked by a student not too long ago when I was speaking at a school where he he asked us he was like you've obviously you know you've succeeded at everything that you've done but what how do you view view failure and I was like well to be honest a lot of the things that a lot of these goals that we set ourselves, they're not life or death. Mm. And if you don't achieve something, the worst case scenario is that you learn from it. And the best case scenario is you get to try again and the things that you learn lead to the success of that goal. And that's the thing, like you, you can always have another opportunity of at least trying again or going about it a different way or setting a different goal. Mm. Like the, the failure shouldn't define who you are. What, what you should be defined by is how hard you work to try, and, to try and do these things. And that's where I've taken a lot of pride in my approach, not only to the recovery, was the pride in actually just showing up every single day and doing the work. But that's the way I look at a lot of the different things in life now. We can look at that right back to when you started surfing. You, the consistency you showed getting in the cold morning yeah. when the surf was crap, like it's consistency yeah. that, that you've spoken about. I love that you mentioned pride. Sometimes people throw that emotion around as being a negative. but Yeah, I, it's, I've learned to embrace it because yeah. I don't know if it's tall poppy syndrome. I'm not sure what it is, but we are afraid of saying we're proud of ourselves. And I am one of those people who always was I wouldn't say that I was proud of myself or what I was doing because I don't want to big up myself or anything like that. But when I look at some of the things that I've been able to do, I'm genuinely proud of, of doing them and not necessarily proud of the fact that I've achieved them, but proud of the things that have got me there. Like that's, when I look at the, I mean, that there, that, <laughs> that tattoo of me having my first surf back, that is something I'm immensely proud of. And that was one of the first moments where I was okay with admitting that I was proud of being able to get to that point because wow. I, I actually acknowledged that it wasn't about achieving the goal it was about what it took to get there and I think if we can take pride in the process then that is more of a reflection on us being proud of the person that we are not what we achieve or what other people see as, as us so in between starting with Scott and that tattoo we just showed me which is the picture of you and um, Nick, Nick yeah. at Jaroa yeah. in your first uh, can you take us through 
that consistency and that work that you did, including golf. Including <laughs> golf. <laughs> yes. It's, it's an interesting thing because I, I think when I describe the recovery, it makes it seem like it happened really quick and it was really easy and I was just kicking over these goals all the time because I guess that's what people kind of see from the outside. Um, it neglects to mention the ups and downs of the recovery um, because there always are. Like there's, there's good days and there's bad days. There's, there's days when you make amazing progress, but then there's days where you'll, you know, you'll go in with the best intentions of progress and either fail at something or, or not come out as, attended, as intended and it takes, makes you feel like you take four steps back. And those, those ups and downs were really difficult for me to deal with in the start because the way I would deal with the ups and downs of life before is I always had surfing. Oh, so right. yeah. if I was having a bad day, a bad week, I could easily just go surfing. It would make me feel better. It's where my friends were. It was fun. Like it got me out in nature. It did so much for me. So the reason I struggled with the ups and downs of rehab in the start is because I just didn't really know what to do. Um, and I didn't really know how to use the support that was around me as, as well. Like I knew the support was there and it was very helpful but engaging with that support is a little bit different. Oh, this is so fascinating. In the documentary, you talk about you had a bad day at work, there's a break-in, yeah. and the way you deal with that is you go surfing. Yeah. And now you're saying, that's taken away from you, um, and, but you have other mechanisms, but you don't really know how... They're not as good as surfing, but you don't know how to use well, them. Well, I didn't, I didn't know about them mm, at the start. Right. So there's, there's actually a specific um, story that I share which got me to realise the importance of filling the hole that surfing had left and it comes down to this day I went to physio and I got this new workout plan and it was a big jump forward from where I was the week before which was exciting but also scary um, and I tried and I literally failed almost everything I tried that day and I felt awful like I was I was feeling sorry for myself I was angry I was pissed off all these sorts of things I went home and I just didn't want to talk to people I didn't want to be around anyone and I didn't know how to deal with it and I was sitting there kind of feeling sorry for myself and my dog walks up to me and my dog's a little short haired a uh, long haired dachshund his name's kendrick he's the best um and i don't know if he's emotionally intelligent or if he is just a dog who's looking for scratches but he does this thing all the time where if you're sitting there he'll walk up to you and he puts his like chest over your foot and he puts his paw on your leg and it's almost as if he's like consoling you yeah. in a way but i think he's just asking for a pat but he comes up to me as i'm feeling sorry for myself and he does that to me and i'm like okay i'll give him a bit of attention. I pat him, I grab his squeaky toy, we go outside and just play for a little bit. And I play with him for like 20 minutes. And by the end of it, I had like a little bit of a smile on my face and I'm like, okay, I'll just keep a note of that. The week after I go back to physio to attempt that same plan again. And I do a bit better, but I still fail at like 75% of the things and I still feel pretty bad about myself. I'm still angry, go home. But rather than feeling sorry for myself and isolating, I just get Kendrick's toy straight away, go out the back and have that same effect. I'm smiling by the end of it. And I question, I was like, what did I do beforehand? And that's when I had the realization that it was surfing. So I was like, okay, well, what, what can I do that will give me what surfing gave me? Because surfing is, is amazing. Like it, it's all those things I mentioned before. It's very social, it's a challenge. You're in nature, um, you're in the sun. Like it, it's exercise, it does all these things. I was like, how can I, how can I find other things to fill that gap? So spending time with the dog was only the first one. It then moved on to like coffee with friends. Um, 
a little bit a little bit different gym work um, like I really enjoyed spending time in the gym but that was also probably a little bit too close to the recovery so I needed something that was a step away from that and that's where golf comes in um, I took up golf because it was like the only thing that I could do where I was like what's a sport that I can play where I don't have to run around and I don't have to be mobile golf I can be in the buggy um, can get around the course easily all I have to do is stand there and hit the ball and I went down just to the, the driving range with a friend of mine, um, James, who's played his whole life. And he's been a good friend of mine who became a much better friend through, through the recovery wow. um, and through this, this whole golfing experience. Um, so he, he takes me down there, we hit a few balls and I was like, I think this is, this is something good. And I, I got into it and then I got obsessed with it. And it became something where as I reflected on golf, I was like, it actually gives me a lot of the things that surfing gave me. It is outdoors, it's a challenge. You're, once I could start moving around and walking, it, it was exercise, um, There's, it's obviously social. Like it had a lot of those things that surfing had given me. So that was one of the, the great things that I started to use if I was having those rough days through physio, through my rehab. I knew I could lean not only on golf, but all these other things. Because that's the key when it comes to, to coping I guess is the circumstance is always going to be different um, whether it be <clears throat> I mean it, if I put it in context of the recovery I could finish and have a bad day but it might be raining so I can't play golf so what else do you do yep. for some people like a, a practical world example um, if someone is at work you're not going to nick off, nick off to play nine nine holes of golf. Like you, you've got to have things that you can do in the moment. For some people, it can be like breathing exercises, meditation, or a coffee. Um, but there's there's a bunch of different things that you can do, and these are things that I was learning um, as I was going through my recovery. So that's where I, I look at that recovery process, where it was not so much about just this breezing through. It might have looked like that from the outside, but I learned so much about myself and how I manage adversity not only on the grand scale but on a on a smaller scale as well and that for me is what resilience is is really all about like i think a lot of people look at my experience and they they see like you can you can look at photos of my leg you can look at photos of me laying in a hospital bed you can look at photos of me working my way through the recovery doing box jumps and eventually surfing again and that for a lot of people is they'll describe that as resilience because they're like, wow, look at this amazing, inspiring thing that's happened. But for me, the, the physical recovery is surface level. The stuff that really constitutes resilience is the stuff underneath. And that's, for me, I, I kind of break it down into the support that I had and using it. It's these little ways of coping that I mentioned before. It's the golf, it's the coffees, all these sorts of things. And then it's the mindset and the goal setting. And that, when I started to, to look at what I was building through this recovery, getting from the hospital bed to the surfboard, like that is what that journey is really all about for me. It's, it's everything that I learn along the way. It's not necessarily arriving at that destination mm. of surfing again. And that's why I say, that's where I find pride. Mm. And that's where I find value in, in sharing the story as well. It's like, yeah, the, the attack is engaging. People always listen to that. But for me, the real value is in the stuff that came afterwards. And I think this is where the message that I try and pass on to a lot of people is that it's not about what happens to you. What truly matters is how you respond. And I think that's so evident in the ways that I've responded and the value that you get out of responding because it's not just 
the ability to bounce back, but it's the things that you learn along the way that not only help you get to that point, but they are then strategies or things that you can take into whatever challenge lies ahead of you next. And just as you're processing what Brett has just said, that brings us to the end of part one of my interview with Brett. Stay tuned for part two because we go deeper into his story and then learn about his recovery, his resilience and what he's doing with his life now. Look forward to seeing you in part two. Thanks for listening to the Mindset for Runners podcast. I hope you got something practical and useful out of this podcast or something inspiring to help you get out for your next run. If you have a question about Mindset for Runners or athletes in general, please email me at robmason.run at gmail.com and I'll answer your question on an upcoming podcast. If there's anybody you know who could benefit from the information I share in this podcast, please share it with them. See you next time.